You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. invite you to get your Bibles open to the book of Ruth for this morning. Our time together will be finishing here in the fourth chapter in the book of Ruth. Right after Judges, right before 1 Samuel, Ruth and the fourth chapter. I'm going to read the four first verses officially to start off with and then hopefully work through it as we, as we get through the, the sermon this morning. But before we read the, the whole final chapter, I want to do just a couple minutes of rundown on, on what has happened so far in the lives of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. This is a narrative of four chapters. And so just to refresh, before we jump into the fourth chapter, let's remember all of this roller coaster that has happened and led us up now to the fourth chapter. In the first chapter, we have the, the four characters that are on the scene are Elimelech and Naomi, husband and wife, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, right? And they're in Bethlehem and there is a famine. And so they escape to Moab, where they hope there they're going to find bread and be able to live. And so they move to Moab, and what happens? Elimelech dies. Naomi's husband, Naomi meaning pleasant, her husband dies. Malon and Kilion, they end up staying around in Moab. They marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, and then eventually Malon and Kilion die. So Naomi, four characters start the story, and immediately only Naomi among them is left. So after 10 years in Moab, Naomi hears that there's harvest happening in Bethlehem, decides to go home, talks Orpah into staying back in Moab, but Ruth demands that no, she's going to cling to Naomi. She's going to stay with Naomi, and more importantly, she's going to cling to Naomi's God. She says, your people will be my people your God shall be my God. And she goes back, Ruth and Naomi, then move back to Bethlehem. And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi anymore, but call me Mara, which means bitter. So Ruth moves back with, with this bitter mother-in-law back into Bethlehem, clinging, most importantly, clinging to this God that Naomi serves, the, the God of Israel, so the, to clinging to Yahweh. So in chapter 2, then, we enter into the harvest season. And by God's providence, he guides Ruth into a field owned by Boaz, who is a potential redeemer. We've been told earlier there's no one for them to go back to. But Naomi, in her grief, has evidently forgot this. And by God's providence... Ruth is guided to a field owned by Boaz, and wouldn't you know it, by God's providence, Boaz shows up on this day, and they actually meet, and he discovers, and he gives a blessing upon Ruth, and he, he blesses her for taking refuge under God's wings, and he, he prays that God's blessing would continue upon her, Boaz as a righteous man, Blesses his employees. His employees bless him back when he shows up. He's a God-fearing man of standing. And immediately, we begin to put two and two together, as does Ruth and Naomi. Boaz would make a great redeemer. 
to be able to buy back the land and perpetuate the name of Elimelech's family line. He was, he's a perfect candidate. So this is the plan that Naomi and Ruth set up in chapter 3 to convince or to talk Boaz into marrying Ruth and buying this land back. And they set this plan up and Ruth goes and lays her feet, lays down at the feet of Boaz, takes the wing, the corner of his garment, and pulls it over herself. And when he wakes up at midnight, finding this woman lying at his feet, she asks that he would spread her his covering or his wings upon her. It just says, Boaz has talked about Ruth taking refuge under the wings of God. Ruth now turns that around and says, but may I find refuge under your wings as part of God's blessing. And so this sounds great. Things are going wonderful. Boaz says he's willing, but he says there's a redeemer yet closer than I. Okay, let's practice our audience participation. Boaz says he's willing, and we say, yay. Okay, try it. Boaz says he's willing, and we say, Hey, all right. And he says, but wait, there's a redeemer closer than me. And then we say, oh, okay. That's this, that's this whole narrative all along. Yay. Oh, oh it's going uh, up and down, down and up, down and up. It goes along. And so then we find that Boaz says, I'll go and ask this redeemer if, he'll, if he will buy you back tomorrow. I will settle this tomorrow. He makes this promise to Ruth. Sends her home with like 60 pounds of grain. Ruth is... Is, is evidently a very, uh, she's a stout woman. She's a hard worker, and she's carrying home a lot of grain home to Naomi. And so she gets home, but Boaz promises he's going to solve this. To, he'll solve the matter today, he says, at the end of chapter 3. Enter now Ruth chapter 4, and let's read the first four verses. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate, which is where they do town business, He'd gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. Now get that, behold, bam, behold. The Redeemer, whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. I wanted to get that in there because you're all getting ready to say, after he says, I will redeem it, we all say, oh, all right, somebody's tuned in. Not the yay, we say, oh, <laughs> we say, oh, because this isn't the redeemer that we wanted. We wanted Boaz to show up and this other guy comes in for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he says, I will redeem it. The story is getting ruined. What is going on? This is not the redeemer we've been looking for. But Boaz is shrewd. Boaz knows how to play this game. He's like, this guy's thinking, I get to just buy a bunch of land to have it be mine? All right, perfect. Boaz says, okay. Verse 5, then Boaz said, 
The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also require Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. He's saying that not only do you get the land, but you have to marry Ruth, and the offspring that would come from this union belong to the family of Elimelech, not, not your own kid. It goes to this other family. So, so your inheritance is now tied up in the offspring that would come from your marriage to Ruth. The Redeemer says in verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times concerning in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his, of his native place. You are witnesses to this, you are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. Listen to this blessing. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephathrata, Ephathrata, that's such a hard word to say. May you act worthily in Ephathra. I have no idea how to say that now. I've gone, my mind's gone mush. <laughs> and be renowned in Bethlehem. I read that whole genealogy. I'm, 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 I'm all out of words, all right? So I don't know, this, this Ephratha, that's how I think I say it. And be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. What an incredible blessing comes to them by these people at the city gate. The taking off of the sandal might have something to do with Joshua where it talks about every place that you set your foot will be yours. The land, as they go to conquer the land, God gives this promise, every place you set your foot shall be yours. Maybe that's tied up into this. They take their sandal off and they place their foot, I don't know, on the land. It's a custom we've gotten rid of, obviously. We don't go to the lawyer and take our sandal off to buy land anymore. That's not how we do it. But that's how they did this transaction. And this blessing comes that Ruth will become like Rachel and Leah. Now, do you remember who Rachel and Leah are? They, 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 they want, they're, they're praying that the, this woman will be built up like the house of Israel. And so we have Jacob, whose name has changed to Israel, marries Rachel and Leah. Remember the whole story from Laban, his, his father, his uncle, and all the bad mojo that goes on. He finally ends up with Rachel and Leah. And between Rachel and Leah and then their two maidservants, he has 12 sons to 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God, all flowing from Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. They're praying for this blessing and the perpetuation of the people of God to come through this, this union of Ruth and Boaz. 
this is incredible on, on a whole bunch of fronts, but let's look at a few of them. One of them is that Ruth is a Moabite. She's not even really of the people of God by her birth and by her childhood religion. She's a Moabite. She's a pagan idolater. Moab and, and Israel, there's, we can go back to the story of how Moab becomes a nation, but they do not worship the one true God. And Ruth is from Moab. She's not originally of the people of God, but she is a convert. She is a convert. She may not have been born under the wings of God, but she has certainly taken refuge in there. In fact, you might, the God, we don't know the motive entirely. He says it's because it's going to ruin his inheritance. But Mr. No Name is all we can call him. He's not remembered. It's fast. I mean, it's, that might have something to do in the narrative. The man who rejects Ruth, he's lost to history. We don't, we don't even get told his name. He is forgotten because he wanted to preserve his inheritance. He ends up forgotten. But anyway, he, he gives up his inheritance. And so the, 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 the Ruth has taken refuge under the wings of, of God. And, and as a convert, they're praying that she would be uh, this, this one through whom the nation of Israel, God's people, would be blessed. A Moabite. It's incredible. The second thing is that Ruth, while they're praying for this blessing, Ruth was married to Malon. We don't know how long for sure, possibly up to 10 years, five or six years. There's not a descendant yet. She has yet to bear a child. So this, there's, there, we don't know what the status of God's blessing upon, uh, upon the, the marriage between Ruth and Malon, but for up to 10 years, she has never borne a son in her, in her previous marriage. Is she going to bear a son now? And the third uh, incredible, in, incredible blessing that comes upon Ruth is because why would they make such a huge expectation that she would be like Rachel and Leah? upon such a small and simple story of redemption. I mean, it's, it's a great story, but to talk about may she be for the blessing of, you know, may she be like Rachel and Leah, blessing the whole people of God out of this one story, that's, that's a little bit like, you know, when your kid uh, is, is top of their kindergarten class and you start saying, well, they're going to be the next president. You know, it's like, it's like you know, let's... Let's settle down, all right? Okay, I'm glad that they, they got their colors and their letters down, but they're not necessarily presidential material yet. That's kind of what they're doing. They're like this small story, this, this great success. Hey, it's great. Let's not get carried away. <laughs> that should be like Rachel and Leah. Isn't that a bit of a high expectation? But that's thrown out there. The story of Ruth and her redemption has come to full flower. Ruth and Boaz are married. And verse 13, as we go on in the narrative, tells us the rest of the story. Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. And he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception. And she bore a son. Isn't that a great ending? This, this tragedy, this terror, this suffering, this sorrow, this hard journey back. On, on welfare, just searching for grain, just to try to eke out a living, and she ends up married to a, a kinsman redeemer who has great wealth, evidently owning these several lands, and she marries him, and she has a son, and they are redeemed. They now have the perpetuation of their name. They have someone to care for them when they get old, 
Isn't this a great end to the story? We could celebrate. God has orchestrated something amazing, a symphony of good for Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. The end, right? I mean, he could end it there. It's like, hey, and then you know how the, the Disney, you know, they go there, the Disney movie would end, the sun sets, you know, and they ride off into it, and they all lived happily ever after. End of story, right? But there are still nine more verses to go. And that's not insignificant when we've only done four chapters. There's still half of this chapter left. This is not the end. Boaz and Ruth, though, though there's nine verses left, they're not mentioned again. They fade off the scene. They've had this son, and now their name, they they go off the scene. And who comes on as the focus in verse 14? The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in all Israel. Naomi's got a redeemer. I thought the story was about Ruth and Boaz and a redeemer and a son. And now in verse 14, we hear that it's Naomi that has a redeemer. This is why some people, you'll hear them say, the book could more properly be titled Naomi because really she starts out and then she ends it, but she almost ends it. We're not there yet. She, she's, she hangs on longer than she's there before Ruth and she's there after Ruth. So maybe this is a story about Naomi. Naomi opens the story and she ends it. Who's this redeemer? They say, may you, may Lord, be, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in all Israel. Who is this redeemer? He shall be to you, verse 15. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is who is more to you than seven sons, not has married him, but has given birth to him. The Redeemer is the child that is born. For Naomi's sake, we've been talking all along, Boaz is this kinsman Redeemer that Ruth is going to marry to, to redeem their lives. But here we see that the Redeemer is the child that is born for Naomi. For Naomi, it is the child who is the Redeemer. He is the one who's going to redeem. Naomi's Redeemer is the one who Ruth has given birth to. The Redeemer is the child, and he is named Obed. Verse 16, Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. Not to Ruth. A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He, we'll stop there. They named him Obed. They named him Obed. We see this son who is born. This culmination of this book leads to a lineage. Names are huge in the book of Ruth. You know, we've got Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, Kilion, Ruth, Orpah, Boaz, all these names, Mr. No Name, he's not mentioned. And now we get another lineage, this genealogy. They named him Obed. Who was Obed? Well, he was the father of Jesse. Who was Jesse? He was the father of David. Yes, that David, King David, the great king of Israel. So who is this book really about? Ruth, kind of. Boaz, yeah. Naomi, maybe more so. But now David? Well, how does David enter onto the scene? We're almost there. We're almost there. This book 
is written um, in, in the time of David's reign, likely, or after it, as, as a book emphasizing the legitimacy of his lineage. But Ruth is an incredible book for, for this reason. It's focused on this incredibly small storyline, right? I mean, 12 years possibly of existence in the life of Naomi. This is just a window of her life. Not the whole story of Naomi's life even. Just, 12, just a 12-year window. It's focused on this incredibly small unit of people and makes their storyline shine while at the same time it's showing this incredibly greater storyline that's being worked out as a result. It's this one little storyline, and it's ups and downs and culmination and good, but then really pointing to this greater storyline that's being written all along. God has been working out his own greater purposes, but in that working, he was working ultimate good. So this book, if it's clearly written in, in the time of David's reign, it's written as a justification or explanation of his lineage. David, well, he had a Moabite for a grandma, doesn't he? I, should he be king of Israel? Isn't his lineage a little funky? Well, here's the story of how this Moabite came to be his grandma. It was clearly the providential working of God. And further, you can go back in the lineage and go to Judah and Tamar. And you can go back to Rahab, who was in, in the story in, in the book of Joshua about Rahab and how she becomes Boaz's mother. And Rahab certainly got a checkered past. All of this checkered past, but all of it God working through all of these difficult things to accomplish his greater purposes. It's incredible to see the running at a meta level, a higher, bigger level, a meta level over the experiences of Ruth and Naomi's Tragedy, tragedy and their restoration was the purpose of God, a purpose for the good of his people. Now, what we need to do, since we've got even more of the picture revealed to us, we can look at this final genealogy, right? It's titled at the end, if you've got a heading in your Bible, the genealogy of David. These are the generations of Perez, who is the son of Tamar and Judah, Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. And Aminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Does that sound familiar? All those words I read out of Matthew earlier, just this morning? That wasn't that long ago. Sound familiar? The incredible lineage doesn't end with David. We've got more of the picture now than even they did at the time of David. What city does this whole narrative revolve around? The answer is Bethlehem. Bethlehem. That's the city, this whole narrative, the town they left in the beginning, the town that they've returned to. So if we go to Micah chapter 5, minor prophet here back in your Bible, go to Micah chapter 5. I'll give you a page number here in just a second in your pew Bible. Micah chapter 5 is on page 926 in your pew Bible. And here's this hard word again. Matthew, or Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, Ephrathah, okay, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, 
from ancient of days. We read this incredible message from the prophet Micah concerning the town of Bethlehem. Who is this ruler, this ancient one, this one from days of old? It is Jesus. It is Jesus. God is working out in this micro story in the Gospel of Ruth, in the Gospel of Ruth, in the book of Ruth, is this is just one small glimpse in this huge story that God is writing to work out his ultimate purposes. Have you ever wondered why Joseph and Mary are traveling when Jesus is born? Right? And if you've read the, the Christmas narrative in Luke chapter 2, there's this census that's decreed by Quirinius that they are to go to their hometown to be registered at their hometown location. And so Joseph takes his betrothed and they go back to Bethlehem because that is where their lineage is from. They go back to their hometown, Bethlehem, Ruth's town, Boaz's town, Naomi's town, the Redeemer's town. The child that is going to be born. It's interesting language there. The child is the Redeemer. All along, and yes, through all of Naomi and Ruth's griefs and through all of their joy, God was working the ultimate joy for them and all of his people in orchestrating his plan for their rescue through the capital R Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Every single one of us was cut off from God and under his wrath and our rebellion against him. We needed saved, not just out of temporarily unfortunate circumstances. We needed saved from God himself. His wrath was against us. We needed a redeemer. We needed someone to rescue us, someone to work to bring us back into God's favor. And that is what Jesus did. But don't miss the practically applicable message that is wrapped up into all of this. This is why I love the book of Ruth. And I think if you'll embrace the narrative, you'll embrace this story, it will change the way you see everything. We cannot always diagnose exactly what God is doing in every detail of our lives. We cannot diagnose what God is up to. But we have this assurance in his wisdom, in his control, and in his kindness we can rest assured that he is working for the ultimate good of his children. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way in his little commentary. He says, we must never limit the purposes of God as though he were only doing one thing at a time in only one person and place at a time, here and now in me. Somehow, sometimes, we can be deeply puzzled by the circumstances of our lives. What is God doing? Too frequently we focus attention on ourselves as though the answer lay within our own individual lives, as if we were the central key to interpreting the plan of God of the entire universe. God is intimately aware of us and deeply concerned for our welfare, but his providential purposes, which include me, do not center on me. As though what he is doing in me could be isolated from everything else he is doing. No, God's purposes crisscross, zigzag, 
cross-fertilize one believer's life with that of an unbeliever or one believer's experience with another believer. He is always simultaneously and contemporaneously doing several things in several lives. Often we take narratives like this one, Ruth, or ones like Job even, and we try to justify the rightness of them by how they end up, right? And we say, well, it was all okay with Job because at the end, you know, he's, he has more kids and he gets back more cattle and he's richer than he was at the beginning. So isn't the story okay? And we take the story of Ruth and we say, well, you know, she ends up, she gets married and she has a son. And so, you know, the story justifies itself and isn't everything good? Naomi now has a new grandchild. But I don't think that's how this works. I really don't. Because here's the thing. Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, Job, they all still live just in the real world like we all do. And do you ever get to a point where it's like, oh, everything bad that's going to happen is now done, smooth sailing the rest of the way out. No one ever gets there. No one ever gets to that place. They're still in the, still in the real world. They still share in this broken world. I can't imagine that their lives don't return back to all the normal stresses Trials and griefs of this life. Of course they do. Yes, they have Obed, but do they have more kids? Do they have more sorrow, more suffering? How much more death surrounds them? How many more trying times surrounds their life? Of course they have more trouble. And of course ours will as well. Highs and lows, good times and tough ones, they come to us all. But what the Ruth of narrative, the narrative of Ruth works to show us is that we cannot diagnose our final good or ill by the moments of the micro-narrative. We cannot diagnose our final good or final ill based upon these temporary moments of our life. We must raise our eyes to the eyes of God's meta-narrative. The bigger story that God is writing through all of history. And yes, tied up with all sorts of smaller stories, just like the one of Ruth, just like yours. Trying to diagnose what's God doing here? How is this all working? We need to lift our eyes to the larger story. How do you diagnose how things are going when you look at the manger in Bethlehem? God is born and where does he show up? He's laid in a feeding trough. How's that going for you? God couldn't even get them a room at the inn. <laughs> Things are not going well. If you're going to diagnose it by those temporary, those momentary circumstances, I'm not sure God knows what he's doing. Go to the end of Jesus' life. He's arrested, beaten, hung on a cross. Couldn't God stop that suffering? Does God even know what he's doing? What's going up? If we start to diagnose our lives based upon small moments of grief and trial and difficulty, we'll get wrong. I mean, how, much miss, how much will we miss in the larger story that God is writing? Just like the book of Ruth, though we could not have guessed what God was up to, and though it did involve human sin and real suffering, God was working his good purposes, and he will not fail to get all the praise and glory for his name and to invite us into that joy of that eternal reality. Sinclair Ferguson says again, there is a broad and general lesson to be learned here. The explanation for much that takes place in our lives lies well beyond our own lives. 
It may be hidden from us through all our lives. For God does not mean to touch only our lives by what he does in us. He has the lives of others in view, even those yet unborn. That is why life can seem so untidy for the people of God. He has not yet finished his business. There may be many loose ends. The tapestry is only partially complete. He still has much weaving to do in which he will bring those loose ends together, perhaps in someone else's life in the future, long after we are God, gone. God means to bring blessings and answers to prayer beyond anything we could ask or imagine, just as he did here. It is a mark of genuine faith to look beyond our own day to the time when God will fulfill his purposes. I don't know what God is doing right here exactly. I couldn't line out for you why your life has gone the way that it has gone. But this is clear from Scripture. God knows. God knows, and he will not fail those who are his. He is working his purposes. And don't get caught up into see, well, he gave Ruth what she wanted. God is working something far bigger than that. He's working on the coming of the Messiah. Jesus is going to be born. Thousands of years later, Christ is going to be born in Bethlehem. God is working out his purposes. And he will not fail those who are his. That is why we as his children, through faith in Christ, can rest in our said hammock. The hammock that we built a couple of weeks ago. God's control and his kindness. We have hope-filled assurance in the mystery and majesty of his control and kindness. God is in charge. He is working his purposes, and God loves his people. God will not fail his people. And so we rest in the hammock that hangs between these two trees of his control and his kindness. And when we look at the circumstances of our life, and we can't diagnose what God is up to, why has this happened? What's going on in this situation We can set ourselves in the hammock and we can remember God has not lost charge of what he's doing and God loves his people. God has sent Christ to save them from their sins. He is purposing their good and we can rest in this hammock. He is the sovereign of the universe. He is in control and he is good and he will not fail his children. We can raise our eyes, set them upon him and his eternal purposes and rest. And may we all find peace and joy sheltered like Ruth did under the shadow of his wings. Let's pray. God, help us raise our eyes. Colossians chapter 3, in a couple weeks we're going to get to set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Help us, God, to raise our eyes to Christ, to you in glory to the God who is sovereign over all things. Help us, God, to take much encouragement from this book of Ruth, that we might, God, in your mercy, look back in years to come at this Advent season when you really worked a view in our heart of you that is confident that even though we couldn't diagnose so many circumstances of our life, so many things that went the way we did not want them to go, that it did not mean, God, that you had somehow lost charge, lost control, or that somehow you had changed your mind and were no longer working for our good. You are. You are the God who is always working for your own glory 
and for the good of your people in you being glorified. God, may we have great confidence in that. May we rest in all that Christ is for us and in knowing that he is ours, you are ours, and we can rest in your control and kindness towards us to work nothing but good for us in your final purposes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.